You are listening to the Twibbly Podcast, or This Week Was Way Better Last Year. Comedy podcast looking back at This Week in History. You can find us on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Podbean, or wherever you like to get your podcasts from. You can find us and or message us over on Facebook and Instagram using TWWWBLY. Welcome back to Twibbly, or this week was way better last year. My name is Bill with one L. With me, he moved 16 tons. And what does he get? Another day older and deeper in debt. It's Mr. Jeff Huge. I only moved the 16 tons if, if I lift with my legs. <laughs> What's going on? How are you? Um, you know, I'm all right. Uh, I, uh, I made a dietary change not that long ago. I, I sort of stepped off the vegetarian bandwagon, or stepped off the vegetarian wagon, because it's not really a bandwagon. Okay. Uh, and sure. and had a roast beef sandwich. And first time I've eaten uh, land animal protein in almost four years. Wow! It was remarkably unremarkable. Yeah, roast beef's not my favorite. If I was gonna break a streak like that, I wouldn't have been with roast beef. I'm surprised you didn't do hot dogs. I know you like I, hot dogs. I I lobbied hard for hot dogs, but this was because my son, who's also been a vegetarian with with us for with Meg and I since we started, he's a vegetarian too, and he had this sort of vision of a roast beef sandwich after riding his bike. And I thought, okay, I can make that happen. And it was a day when Meg was at work. So so I effectively I cheated on my <laughs> diet when my daughter wasn't home. I bought this stuff to make big roast beef subs and it was it was really it was good. But I I remember right. eating it thinking like, Well, that's a thing. All right, so I have some questions. Lay it on me. Did you notice how salty it was? I didn't taste it as super salty, but let me tell you. The yeah. hump on my back wouldn't go away for four days. I don't understand. I was like a camel. I was holding on my water. I was retaining water. Bill, oh, with the sodium. Okay, all right. So, okay, so it was salty. You okay. just didn't notice it tasting salty. Okay, I didn't notice it tasting salty, but I held on to water like three or four pounds of water. It was crazy. Right. Whenever I was up in Canada, like the day we left, like the last Canadian meal we had. We went out for a smoked brisket. That stuff is super salty. Oh yeah. Like I. Yeah, I, I made it like the whole drive home, and I didn't have to stop to pee at all. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's like the the old quote from Futurama, right? This is the saltiest thing I've ever tasted, and I once ate a whole bowl of salt. <laughs> the one thing that's probably going to end up killing me is going to be heart disease. So I stick with low sodium. I mean, I'm not vegetarian, but I stick with low sodium stuff. Whenever I get peanut butter, I always get unsalted. Mm-hmm. And then one time, I made the mistake of getting salted, like regular salty peanut butter. That tastes like a salt sandwich. When you're so used to unsalted peanut butter and you switch back over, oh God, I don't know how I don't know how I ate it ever before that. Now I have questions, Bill. Okay. When you get unsalted peanut butter, do you get crunchy or do you get smooth? Crunchy. So you're saying that you eat a sandwich of crunchy sadness because I can't imagine enjoying unsalted peanut butter at all. Really? Yeah. No, no. I get the and I get the stuff you got to stir too. I get natural peanut butter. Yeah, I like that. That's my favorite kind of peanut butter too. Is the it's only got like three ingredients. One of the ingredients is salt. Yeah, my ingredients is peanuts, and that's it. Yeah, peanuts and something to smash them down into little tiny pieces. So you think it's going to be another four years, or 
Are you going to uh, – I mean, I can hold off. I won't tell Meg. I'll, I'll keep it a secret. <laughs> well, nah, Meg knows. We, I mean, I told her as soon as she came home. But I probably will stay with the, the vegetarianism for another four or five years, I think. It was that anticlimactic. I was like, oh, you know what would have been better than this? Like fish and chips, which I still eat. So You know what would have been better than this? Something I eat anyway. It's something yeah. I already <laughs> eat, yeah. Well, I say the next time you come down to this area, put it off one more time and we'll go for, we'll go for Gary's. All right. That's a deal. Yeah, for those of you not around here, Gary's is like a legendary hot dog shack in uh, like a mile away from my house. Yeah. Yes, I definitely. Since I've already broken the fast, right? All right. Before we get the show started, I do have my very popular and always well-received trivia question. Jeff, slow pitch right over the plate for you today. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Star Trek, the original. Yes. How far into the future does that series take place? Oh, I'm, I thought this was going to be easy, but I might have stumped you. Okay. <laughs> well, just because I didn't blurt the answer out doesn't mean I don't know it. I mean, we generally well, give the answers at the end of the show. Or as I will say in Star Trek speak, we'll beam it to the end. I figured you would have went, oh, 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 like Horseshack if you really knew the answer. So we'll see. We'll see what you, we'll see what you know. Yes. But this is going to be the week beginning, October the 17th, and it is your turn to start. Speaking of TV shows of the 1960s, October 17th, 1960. The quiz show scandal breaks. And if you don't know what the quiz show scandal is... And I don't. I'll, I'll explain it to you. There was a series of super-duper popular TV shows on in the 1950s and into the 1960s. One of the most famous was one called 21. And on the show, 21, turns out that the producers wanted a different champion. So they manipulated the way that the show worked so that they could get the champion that they wanted. They wanted a guy whose parents were like multiple Nobel Prize winners or he had multiple Nobel Prize winners in his family so that it made the show seem extra smart. Sure. The problem with this is, yeah, the show sort of sells itself on that it's an actual game that right, has right, actual right. rules to play by. So the audience got super duper angry about this. And there, was, there were a couple of other shows that had similar issues, one called The Big Surprise, another one called Dalo. And ultimately, it became an, an episode of the TV show where the contestants sued for fraud and ultimately won because they were sort of selling the idea that it was a competitive program and it made the person that they made lose look dumb. Right. And this went all the way to like court too. Oh, yeah. People got arrested. It was accusations of perjury. There was a movie made about this in 1994 called Quiz Show. Right. That was based on these events. And there was even an episode of Happy Days where Richie was on a game show. And because he had like the American Pie looks that he did, they were like throwing the show in his favor. Yeah. And he like, yeah, he like refused to participate because not only did he look like America, he was America. Well, they did a good job on on Happy Days of capturing the, the way that the scandal worked too, because again, uh-huh. the primary driver for these is ratings and advertiser dollars. This is just as advertisements are starting to be the funding source of American television. Oh, right on the I'm looking at the picture and like right on the contestants' podium, it says Geritol. Yeah. Yep. Which was uh, what was that? That was like an iron supplement. Pill, it was a. It? It's a vitamin for for our elderly listeners. Right. <laughs> I think you can still buy Geritol. Ultimately, this caused such a ruckus that uh, Congress amended like a communications law from the 1930s, which said you couldn't predetermine the outcome of quiz shows. Oh so, yes, you can. <laughs> so well, nah, it's against the law. Like you go to jail now. I don't know if it's a felony, but I know you end up with a ton of problematic uh, fines yeah. if you do that. So quiz shows, yes, but like 
Survivor or other reality shows like that, not so much. I think this speaks to the idea that people expect reality TV, which a quiz show really sort of is. It's almost like a sporting event, right? It's presented as a sporting event, a contest of, of smarts. All right. Yeah, sure. That its outcome is determined by the play of the game and not predetermined for entertainment purposes. When that line blurs, you find it's really easy to manipulate the way that people think about other stuff. And I think that probably the reason that Congress was willing to amend the Communications Act was because they realized that that was a slippery slope to other potentially problematic uses for television as a tool, whether it was for advertising or for politics or for something else. I don't know. I watch wrestling, so uh, <laughs> I had my heart broken you know, in the early 80s when I found out that it was choreographed. For me, like I, I think of all the different quote-unquote reality TV shows that are on now and have been on an increasing in frequency, volume, and et cetera since the, like, the last big writer's strike in the 19, like, n- late 1980s. Right. So stuff like MTV's The Real World, which I always assumed was documentary, it's not. You know what else is in real life? October the 18th, 1988 was the debut of the original Roseanne sitcom. Well, that wasn't a documentary? <laughs> Not until much later. Roseanne was a uh, American sitcom featuring female comedian Roseanne Barr, mm-hmm. centered around her fictitious family life with, was it John Goodman was John her husband? John Goodman, yeah. John Goodman was her husband. And she had two daughters, and I think her sister kind of like hung out yep. uh, at the house too. Yes. Uh, I never really watched it. I remember it being a big phenomenon. I remember it being very popular, but I was I didn't really watch a lot of TV at that time in my life. That was right as I was finishing up college when I was living in New Hampshire. And, you know, you have like enough cable TV to watch five channels. And that was one of the shows that I used to watch all the time. And I liked it because I think it was groundbreaking a little bit because, too, it, it focused on on a family that had realistic struggles. Right. They worked in surprisingly not glamorous jobs. I think for a while she was a assembly line worker in a toy factory. And then she had a loose meat sandwich restaurant. Dan had a heart attack at the end of one of the seasons. And it was really relatable for a lot of it. And then it went away. Right. And the memories of how good that show was brought it back at the beginning of like all the streaming wars. Right. And there was controversy there because we're not going to get political. Nope. But no, no. Roseanne Barr said some pretty unsavory comments about a politician that she didn't necessarily agree with. You know, Disney wasn't touching that with a 10-foot pole and pulled her contract and not necessarily canceled the show, but they got rid of her. Yeah. And then they brought it back uh, with the rest of the cast and just not her. They just kind of like wrote her out of the show. Yes. I don't remember. They changed the name of the show, obviously. Yeah, they changed it to the family name, which was The Connors. All politics aside, right? This isn't a politics podcast by any stretch of the imagination. I I think it speaks to the idea that people change, worlds change, time changes things. And what you might remember was so interesting about something that's 10 or 20 years old isn't the same. The people that are in it aren't the same. The world that that show lived in isn't the same anymore. So when you adapt it to make it modern, you you run into issues because it doesn't adapt. Like, as of this recording, Hocus Pocus 2 hasn't come out yet. And I remember everybody banging every pot and pan they could possibly get their hands on, demanding a sequel to Hocus Pocus. My prediction, people are going to be disappointed because Hocus Pocus is a classic and there's no real need to build on top of it. There was no real need to bring back Roseanne. Right. You know? 
you know me. I'm I'm the yep. guy who doesn't generally watch reboots, remakes, etc. Because mm-hmm. that intellectual property already exists. I, if I want to watch that, I'll go get the DVD of what I liked before. But I think that in a rush to sort of capture that market share, it's easy to go back with, well, this show had like 10 million vi- watchers in 1993, 94, 95. We, if we get half of that, we're going to get a ton of people watching all the other stuff that we produce for this streaming service we have. And it doesn't always work that way. Moving on to the next day. October 19th, 1982. Entrepreneur and car designer John DeLorean. In an effort to finance the DeLorean automobile company that was going to manufacture cars in Ireland is busted for possessing 59 pounds of cocaine. 59 pounds of cocaine. Yeah. 59 pounds is a lot of just about anything. 59 59 pounds pounds is a lot of free weights at the gym. Depending on whose account of this you read, he was either set up by the government to sort of be a fall guy. There was some chicanery with regard to the big three automakers who sort of assumed that his car was going to be so revolutionary that they had to take him out of the game. There's the potential that he wasn't going to be able to put the cars out on time and was going to default on a bunch of loans that he got from the British government to build his factories in Ireland. At any rate, it wiped out the DeLorean car company. Yeah. And John DeLorean's uh, no, he, no slouch. He invented the GTO. Like, he invented muscle cars. Right. He pled not guilty and he was acquitted. He was not found guilty of that crime, but it destroyed him. Yeah. You know? I don't know if the DeLorean was... I mean, don't let the Back to the Future franchise swerve your opinion... I don't think the DeLorean car was something that was going to last. Well, they had those shitty flux capacitors in them. I'm not surprised. <laughs> well, they only went like 88 miles an hour. That, that's, that's actually well, the, true. <laughs> yeah. Well, the whole thing was made out of stainless steel. I mean, the thing must have weighed, I'd say, a ton, but probably more than a ton. Yeah, they were kind of cool looking. The stainless steel was nice because it prevents corrosion. But everything else in it was sort of off the rack GM parts that he sourced from British car companies and American car companies and never put in a rotary engine or the engine that he had designed for the car. It all ended up with a sort of crummy six-cylinder and they weren't fast and they weren't sporty and they're not very good. You know what? Modern day, it's kind of like the PT Cruiser. The body is sexy looking. But it's built on top of like a neon, you know, chassis. Oh, yeah. You were saying earlier that the DeLorean engine was just like a crappy little GM engine, right? Yep. I think it's the GM like 3.6 liter V6. And in 1980s horsepower, that's like 85 horsepower. So, you know, it's got a, I think they had a three speed automatic and a five speed stick that you could get. The real big problem they had was the hydraulics that held the gull wing doors open. They would uh, crash down and like snap your leg if you. Oh, God. Out. I can only imagine. I, I look at those doors and I'm like, that's going to come right down real fast. My so. thought, too, is like, well, like I have a garage under my house. and I park my car yeah. in my garage and it's hard enough to get out of my car. In, and I have a small car. I have a Mazda 3. It's not big. Uh-huh. But my garage is not big either. Like, I couldn't open the DeLorean's gullwing door in my garage. I couldn't be able to get out of the car. Right. And you have a two-car garage. I have a one-car garage. I was like, well, I don't know. Yeah, well. Well, they don't exist anymore. There was one I would see in, like, parked on the street in Fall River. Uh, you know, probably, I think the last time I saw it was probably like 10, 15 years ago. I would have assumed that getting parts for it would be challenging. But one, like you said, it's a GM engine. And two, you know, the internet is the internet. You can find anything these days. It's not like you get to go search it through a junkyard anymore. Yeah, uh, you're pretty much adapting, like, you know, 
vacuum lines and other stuff. It's not not super hard to do. All right, moving on to the 20th. October the 20th, 1990, three members of the Two Live Crew rap act are acquitted on obscenity charges in Florida. Good uh, old Florida. I remember that. Two Live Crew, for those of you who don't recognize the name, I'm going to say this, but first I want to give credit where credit's due. They were free speech pioneers because of this event. And right. they were the Florida rap scene for a while. There wasn't one before there was the two live crew. Right. And inspired a really robust conversation on obscenity and what was broadcast safe, etc. in popular culture in the 1980s and early 1990s that still reverberates today. I remember that album. It was called As Nasty As They Want To Be. It was... An absolutely filthy and vulgar rap album. Every other word was a swear. All the songs were about sex and partying. And I remember it getting passed around my work like it was so like edgy or controversial or whatever. And I was like a 19-year-old kid. I was like, yeah, I know. I can swear. It wasn't really impressing me, you know? And also, it's not really that good as far as rap and hip-hop goes. I've said before that 1990s... Hip-hop is my favorite era for hip-hop. And Two Live Crew was, yeah, wasn't wasn't doing anything for me. No, I was like, okay, it swears, big deal. It didn't do anything for me either, except well, I have like two funny stories. One is at the time that that record came out, I dated a girl who gave me a copy of the As Nasty As They Want To Be. There were two versions of that record that were released. It was As Nasty As They Want To Be and As Clean As They Want To Be. Which didn't sell. It was, clean as they, it was called As Clean As They Have To as Be. As Clean As They Have To Be. And it didn't sell anywhere near... The quantities no. <laughs> that as nasty as they want to be did. And I never capitalized on that because I think there might have been some subtle messaging by virtue of her <laughs> giving me that that record. She was telling you, me love you long time. She, yes, and, and uh, me screwed it all up. Uh, <laughs> but um, the other thing was that Luke, the singer, yes. put out a really good song after all of this happened called Band in the USA. Yes, I remember Which that. borrowed a little bit from Bruce Springsteen's Born in the USA to build its its hook on, but it was a great song and a really good rallying cry for free speech artists. So ultimately, like Ice-T put out the whole album, the Iceberg Freedom of Speech, Watch What You Say, right after this, the band that I have loved since the 90s, Too Much Joy, played a set of yep. two live crew songs when it was illegal to play them in Florida and they got arrested too. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a lot that sort of went on with this record that that Luke and the rest of the gang opened up. And then George Lucas, uh, you know, right on time shows up and says, his name is Luke Skywalker. We can't have any. I want my money. Yeah, I want my damn money. Luther Campbell is the uh, the singer and the founder of the Two Live. But he was going by the stage name Luke Skywalker. He was a DJ in a strip club or strip clubs. And that was where he right, put, put, put Miami, his act together. Believe, yeah, right. down in Miami. All right. Moving on to the 21st. October 21st. <laughs> Speaking of obscenity and yep. an, uh, an ironic turn of events. 1972, Chuck Berry's song, My Dingling, which is exactly what you think it's about. Goes to number one <laughs> on the American Top 40. I first heard that song. See, my mom used to buy me these records from k You know, they used to put out compilation records of like, it was called Dumb Ditties, this one was called. And it had just a bunch of like novelty songs from like the 50s, 60s, and early 70s and all that. And Chuck Berry's My Dingling was like the second song on the, on the album. First or second. And I remember like, 
can I bring it to school? You know, and my mom's like, no. What I ended up compromising with was I recorded the record onto cassette and eliminated the My Dugaling song. So that song actually dates all the way back to 1952. Chuck Berry's version was uh, recorded live in concert. It's a callback and response song with everybody doing the sing-along and everybody singing my, you know, the ding-a-ling callback. Yep. Yeah, the original version of the song, it's still like Randy, but it's Randy in like a 1950s way. So it's right. it's like cheeky funny. <laughs> it's cheeky. Yeah. The, opening, the opening line of the song or the opening verse says he's talking about silver bells hanging on a string. That's his ding-a-ling. And yeah, and then Chuck Berry comes in and writes the rest of the new lyrics and it is very obvious that he's talking about his junk and not uh <laughs> silver bells. Yes. Yeah. Um the double entendres in the song in the seventy two version of the song are super funny. Double entendres. <laughs> first, the first They're pretty straight to the point if you ask me. <laughs> My experience with this song is that I didn't even know Chuck Berry had recorded this song until I was an adult. Stop it. Uh, no, I'm not kidding. But I had heard this song a lot as a kid because I had an aunt and uncle who used to come to family parties, Aunt Vivian and Uncle Manny, and they would bring guitars and banjos and mandolins and stuff, and they would sing songs. One of the songs they sang with us when we were little, little kids was My Dingling. It was always like a Christmas, like... Everybody was howling with laughter by the end of it. All the little kids, all the parents, whatever. Mm-hmm. So I remember hearing this song when I was six or seven years old and thinking it was just the funniest thing ever. And then when I was an adult, I heard Chuck Berry and I'm like, damn, he must have stole this from my aunt and uncle. <laughs> Did they also used to do like the man from Nantucket? Was that one on their set list? Too? <laughs> no, but they used to do like hits from the two live crew record as nasty as they want to be. <laughs> all right. Oh, hey, Jeff, guess what? It's the end of the world as we know it. October the 22nd, 1844, according to religious followers of William Miller, uh, a.k.a. the Millerites, uh, many of whom gave away all of their earthly possessions in preparation for the event. It was supposed to be the end of the world based on a 2300-day prophecy in the book Daniel, I think like chapter 8 or something like that. So at any rate, uh, yeah, the, the day came and went and nobody, you know, the world didn't end. Sorry, guys. I don't understand why people like sell or give away their stuff. It's like if the world ends, nobody's going to be here. What do you need their money for? What, what are you? you know, what, yeah. What, what are, you, are you giving away? Right. Just leave it there. Hedge your bets. Hedge your just bets, in case right? the world doesn't end. It's opposite side of uh, Pascal's wager, right? You're better off just believing in God <laughs> because what? What if you're not? What if you're right? You know? What if you're? What if right. you're not wrong? And what do you got to lose? So in that case, you're like, you know what? I'm going to keep my barn and my donkey and my four geese and the lady that lives with me and that milks the cow. And, and my uh, PlayStation. And, and uh, I might be back tomorrow, but I might not be. So I'm going mountain climbing. <laughs> All right. So here's the actual uh, day. I guess our friend over here, Andre Jacques Guderin, he probably thought the world was ending because he attempted and pulled off the first parachute jump. Which makes me happy that the first parachute jump was successful. Right. <laughs> well, that's the thing. Either you're the world's greatest parachute jumper or you're some stuff on the ground. You're getting blotted off the sidewalk, right? Uh, so this is October 22nd, 1797. That's like a hundred and some odd years before the airplane was invented. So I have questions, first of all. I have a lot. I, I might have answers. I don't know. Is um, the first, I'm sure he came, to, you know, the 1797 equivalent of like, that show Shark Tank, and he's like, I have an idea for this. I will go at the parachute, huh? It is a cloth flag. 
but it is tied at the corners, and when I leap from the sky, I will float safely to the ground. Ah. And the French version of Mark Cuban from 1797 goes, but uh, how will you get high up in enough in the sky to jump? We don't have details. We don't have things that fly. <laughs> so, so like really limited application for this. Like if you ever have to jump out of a balloon, just yeah, you don't don't get in the balloon. <laughs> so uh, what his invention was? I mean, this was made to be a parachute. It was a hot air balloon, which had a rope attached to it, which had the parachute apparatus, and then the parachute apparatus was attached to the basket. And when he got to about 3,000 feet, he cut the rope and then parachuted down in this basket, which was like basically a big, um, you know, a parachute, Bill. <laughs> the thing you're describing is a parachute. <laughs> a big elaborate umbrella is what it was. And then floated down. The basket swung around like you would expect it would during the descent. I'm sure. Yeah, but he came out uninjured. I'm sure there was a lot of dookie at the bottom of the basket. I'm sure the conversation on the ground went something like this. Ta-da! It's a stupid idea. Uh, you know, my French isn't so good, but I'm sure somebody said in French, Are you f***ing nuts? <laughs> That's a perfectly good balloon you jumped out of. All right, and let's wrap up the week. October 23rd, 1854, the English newspaper The Times accidentally gives... <laughs> Precise British positions in the Crimean War to, to, to Crimea during the Crimean War. And they do this because the first guy to be a technical war correspondent, William Howard Russell, who is an Irish reporter that worked for the Times, was able to transmit from the front over telegraph wires back to the Times Bureau and right. could effectively deliver real-time descriptions of the horrors of the Crimean War. The Crimean War is pretty goddamn awful. And uh, William Howard Russell didn't sugarcoat it. He also didn't do things like protect the identity of like where the British troops were. So the Crimeans <laughs> could figure out where to point their cannons and probably made things worse. He was there at the Siege of Sevastopol. He was there at the Charge of Light Brigade. He was there for other events later after the Crimean War where he sort of established the way that war journalism works. But what's interesting about this one is the technology that he had at his disposal was the cutting edge, most modern technology in the world for communications. He had a telegraph machine. What year was this now? Like 1850s. Wow. So I remember during, well, I don't remember, but I remember reading uh, during World War II, we've all heard the cliche, loose lips sink ships. That's basically this in a nutshell where they were telling people, you know, if you know things about the war, like if, uh, you know, somebody writes home to you and they say things, don't go talking about it in bars and stuff like that because you never knew who was listening and stuff. So here's our friend uh, William Howard Russell just like, I don't know if he did it. Did he, Was it on purpose or was it just well, like I mean, a, he's in, in being a correspondent, he's reporting on like, you know, we're on the banks of the Alma River. I'm with blah, blah, battalion, and we're preparing to go across the river at at first light, right? So he's sending us to the Times. Yeah. The Times prints the newspaper overnight, and the newspaper gets distributed early, early in the morning. It gets distributed yeah. early, early in the morning. So someone else with one with a telegraph machine can also look at this paper and say, oh, they're on the banks of the Alma River, telegraph that back yeah. to Crimea. Within a day or so, it's not like troop movements are gone in a day. So the newspaper- right. Or Crimea just intercepted. That, right. That's a possibility too, yeah. Or they just subscribe to the paper. 
All right, let's see where the, Indian, the English army is this week. Oh, it's right on the front page, you know. All right, moving on to the celebrity birthdays. October the 17th, 1947, uh, American actor, your friend and mine, Michael McKean. You might know him for, like, Spinal Tap and Laverne and Shirley. Yeah, he was David St. Hubbins, the co-founder of Spinal Tap. Yeah, and he, yeah, he was uh, Lenny Kosnowski of uh, Lenny and Squiggy, who... You know, never went anywhere without Squiggy, but somehow had a jacket that said the lone wolf on the back of it. <laughs> uh, ironically enough, uh, they worked out some of the Spinal Tap stuff on that show. His partner on Spinal yep. Tap, Christopher Guest, played his character, Nigel Tufnell, in Lenny's band on some episode where there was a battle of the band. Right. Lenny and the Squig Tones. Right. All right. Next up. October 18th, 1960. Jean-Claude Van Damme. The Muscles from Brussels. A 1980s superstar action star who technically was in the B tier of action stars, Mm -hmm. but still made a huge impact in his film career, especially at the height of his fame with Kickboxer and Lionheart. He was in John Woo's first American film, Hard Target. He was the, you know, kung fu action hero, like the, he was like the next big thing for like a heartbeat, maybe two heartbeats. And then, yeah, he just kind of, like, vanished. He really didn't, well, he, you know, he, he wasn't as famous anymore. He, yeah, he vanished into direct-to-DVD stuff. I have a couple of his right. of his films that were made in, like, Bulgaria. They're not bad. Uh, he's he's a pretty solid actor for an older action star guy. And had, mm-hmm. a, had a couple of uh, return trips to his career. One in the self-deprecating movie called JCVD, where he played himself. Mm-hmm. And he had his own show called Jean-Claude Van Something. I can't remember the, the end of it, but it was a, like a play on his name where he was yeah. a guy playing himself, but also a detective. <laughs> I don't know. I didn't, I didn't watch the whole thing. The one thing that always comes to my mind with Jean-Claude Van Damme is in the early, early to mid 90s, whenever grunge was like all the rage and, you know, a lot of the hipster kids, uh, whatever they called them at the time, you know, they would get their clothes at like thrift stores and stuff like that. And I remember it was some red carpet event. It was probably like Kennedy or somebody from MTV or whatever. And they like kind of like rushed him with the microphone for an interview. And they were like, you know, John Klein Van Damme, do you ever go to flea markets? And he was like, flea markets? What do they sell? Fleas? <laughs> and I thought that was actually kind of funny. And it's actually really, really funny, you know, in 2022. Yeah. But I like in the mid-90s, people were so indignant because shopping at a flea market was cool at the time. It's like, oh, he's so snooty. He's so he's not with us, you know. I think by the time he made the quest with uh, Roger Moore, he was like seventy five percent walking cocaine at that point. <laughs> uh, but I tell you what, like I saw Kickboxer, I think six times in the cinema. I absolutely wow. loved that movie. I loved, 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 loved it. I've never watched it since then. But at the yeah. time it was out, I couldn't, I like couldn't see it enough. Moving on to the nineteenth. October the 19th, 1945, John Lithgow, probably best known for The World According to Garp. Uh, but he was in a bunch of other things, too. <laughs> like, really? <laughs> no. I remember him from such films as Harry and the Hendersons. Yep. And from the TV show Third Rock from the Sun. I had mentioned earlier in the show that I didn't really watch a lot of television, probably from like 88 until... I don't know, whenever I got my apartment or whatever. But Third Rock from the Sun came out in 1996. And that was like my, I think it was on Tuesdays. 
That was like my Tuesday night tradition. I would go and hang out with my friend Jim, and we would watch Third Rock from the Sun because that show was absolutely hilarious. That was a great show. Real weird premise. Uh, they were a bunch of aliens visiting Earth, and they all took the forms of human bodies, and John Lithgow was the leader. He's, he did a, a whole variety of roles. He hasn't just done comedy stuff. He's played right. some dramatic parts. He was uh, played a killer in the movie Raising Cain, which was really good and creepy. My first introduction to him on what, you know, like how I first remember him, even though, I mean, he's, his filmography is enormous, but I remember him as the preacher, uh, the father preacher in Footloose opposite. Uh, oh, that's was, right. Yeah, yeah, he was the, uh, the villain, so to speak, opposite Kevin Bacon in the town that banned dancing. All right, moving on. Uh, October 20th, 1971. A guy named Calvin Brodus, known much more colloquially as Snoop Dogg, is born. Probably most famous. Got his start, at least, when Dr. Dre came out as a solo artist away from NWA and started sharing record space with Snoop Dogg at Death Row Records. Right. And I know he's a big part of what made The Chronic such a good album and definitely spun that into his own career. I remember when that was very, very popular. Like one of the songs, it was either on The Chronic or it was on Snoop's uh, debut album, but the song Gin and Juice. You know, that song was super popular. And my friend's sister was a bartender. And she used to get so frustrated because, you know, the customers would come up and like, can I get gin and juice? And she's like, yeah, what kind of juice? That's not a drink. You have to specify the juice. <laughs> <laughs> what I think made his approach so interesting is he had this, he still has this really reserved and lackadaisical way of delivering his, his lyrics. It's, yeah, I don't think that guy's heartbeat's ever gotten above 80. I don't know that he has either, but like he really shows that the performance part of the art makes a big component of the art accessible. Like, I don't listen to a lot of Snoop Dogg, but when I do, it's distinctive. I know exactly who it is. It's easy to follow. It's he uses good turns of phrase. He's an interesting, he's an interesting writer, and he has a great ear for delivery. And it always sounds like somebody who's talking to you that's known you for a long time. Yep. And there's like there's no preconditions with having that conversation with this piece of music. You know what I mean? It sounds really strange, but that's that's how it kind of is. Right. He's a big, big wrestling fan. He's made appearances in the WWE and in the AEW. And former WWE World uh, Women's Champion and ta Women's Tag Team Champion, Sasha Banks. And she was also on The Mandalorian, if you watched that. Sasha Banks, she's actually his first cousin. Oh. Yep. So a lot of people don't know that they're related, but they are. All right. Moving on to the 21st. October the 21st, 1940. Guy by the name of Manford Mann. Probably best known for his unbelievably horrible cover of The Police's Demolition Man. Uh, <laughs> actually, he's best known for probably Dua Diddy. Yeah, I think that's probably where his yeah. most people will recognize him from. Or from his cover of Bruce Springsteen's Blinded by the Light. I don't know if it's a cover. I think Springsteen wrote the song for him. Yeah. Springsteen does that one live now. But that's a Springsteen song that he did with Manfred Mann's Earth Band. Right. That's one of those often misheard lyrics. Yes. Wrapped up like a douche or something. <laughs> yeah, like yeah, it yeah. doesn't no matter how many times you listen to it, it doesn't make sense. Yeah. It's like actually the real lyric is rolled up like a deuce. And it's like, yeah, that doesn't make any difference. Uh no, it's it's revved up like oh, a deuce it, and the oh, deuce is like a two seater deuce? car. It's a car song. It's a it's a it's Springsteen, so it's it's a hot rod car song. 
It's a working man song, yeah. It's a working man song about a guy in New Jersey who's struggling to get out of the town that he lives in. <laughs> Revs up like a deuce. So, yeah, Manfred Mann. Um, like I said, he did a cover of The Police's Demolition Man that is unlistenable. Oh, it's. He should have called it Demolition Man. Yeah. Man. Like they're riding around the video in go karts. It's like, I remember watching it. I was like, who the hell is this? And then it said Manfred Mann. I'm like, really? Ugh. Anyway, all right, I'm mad. I'm mad now. Moving on. Get to something good. October 22nd, 1938. A person to make you not mad anymore and driver of the DeLorean in Back to the Future, Christopher Lloyd, probably ah. best known as the Doc from that movie, but also came into significant fame and prominence on the show Taxi. Yeah, as Reverend Jim. Yeah. Oh. He's, a, <laughs> he's another one with like a real extensive filmography. Uh, uh, you know, obviously people are going to remember him from Back to the Future, but he was also Uncle Fester in the Addams Family movies. Yeah, he was the villain in uh, Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Yes, yep, absolutely. He was in Clue, as we just mentioned with Michael McKean. He was also in Star Trek Three: The Search for Spock. Yeah, yes, he was. I saw him in a movie that came out in 2016, so, you know, fairly recent, uh, called I Am Not a Serial Killer. I saw that movie. Yeah, spoiler, he totally is. Yeah, yep. But that was good. He played a good role. He played a good role in that. All right, and wrapping up the birthdays, October the 23rd, 1892, one of the Marx brothers that nobody seems to know or remember, mostly because he was only in the troupe whenever they were on stage in, in the vaudeville era. He never made it to film. He never made it even to the radio shows. Uh, Gummo Marks. He left the troop. He left the troop to uh, go fight in World War One. And by the time he got back, they were already famous. And uh, he ended up getting a job uh, as a talent agent. And one of his, yeah, one of his uh, clients was Groucho Marks. That makes sense. He must have been good at it because Groucho and and the rest of the other brothers had a, a slamming career from after 1920 or so until which, heck, Groucho was on TV in the 50s. Yeah, I don't know what his gimmick was because, like, you know, Groucho was the, the quick and funny one. Chico had the Italian accent. Harpo didn't talk. Zeppo was, quote unquote, the good looking one. So I don't know what Gummo's gimmick was. Gummo had shell shock. <laughs> yeah, maybe he was a singer. Maybe, uh, maybe he sang and they didn't let him back at the troop because notoriously he sang. The worst song ever uh jeff i was listening to some podcasts not all that long ago talking about the uh scam that is repressed memories oh boy yeah there is a uh school of thought that has been debunked since then but it was the kickoff of what later became the satanic panic where you have memories but they're so bad and traumatic that you're brain squelches them down yeah. and you can't remember them i it, obviously like i said it was a scam it's been debunked in in psychological uh, you know journals and stuff like that but i think it might there might be something to it i was okay. at my i'm interested yeah. now i'm even yeah. more interested than i was a minute ago yeah i was at my friend's house and you know some people they take their vinyl collection and they'll stick it up on the wall to like uh you know display or whatever. And one of the albums he had on display was by a band called the Del Fuegos. And I instantly remembered 
this song from a girl named Juliana Hatfield and her band called the Juliana Hatfield Three with her hit question mark hit song My Sister. So there she is. She's talking about how her sister was going to take her to her first show with the, the Violent Femmes and the Del Fuegos. And I was like, the Del Fuegos. Oh, my God. That's that Julianne Hatfield that song. And oh, my God. That song's terrible. And, and, and I had forgotten all about this song. I had forgotten all about. And then I bring it up to you and you're like, oh, I like Julianne Hatfield. And I'm like, all right. Tell me all about it because I don't really know who she is other than that song. Well, Julianne Hatfield was, I'm not going to say was, because she's, she's still around and she's like not much older than me, if she's older than me at all. Yep. Uh, 1988, 1986, 1990 Boston independent music scene had a handful of bands that were beginning to blossom and grow and develop a following. One of those bands was called the Blake Babies, and that was founded by Julianne Hatfield and Evan Dando. Evan Dando, who would go off and start his own band called the Lemonheads. You remember right. the Lemonheads? She ended up in the Lemonheads as well. Yeah, well, she and Evan Dando had a thing. Again, they were in each other's bands and played all of like the increasingly big and popular clubs in Boston at the time toward the Northeast. Put out records on like Mammoth Records, I think is the company that they were on. So they never got big distribution. They never got onto rock and roll radio because they weren't really rock and roll radio friendly bands. They were a college band. Right. And then... Just as, like, the style of music that she was doing was beginning to become popular, the market got super-duper oversaturated with it. So, Blake Babies broke up before they really went anywhere. I remember playing them on the radio show that I had. Mm-hmm. She went off and started the Julian Hatfield 3. She had her own solo records when it was just her. I have one of them downstairs. It's great. But, like, she started to get some time on MTV at the same time. Polly Harvey did. Uh, Cheryl Crow did. Natalie Merchant left 10,000 Maniacs, another Boston band, and had airtime. The Divinals, uh, that one who sang Joey, Concrete Blonde, all these bands that had sort of female singers and a very specific style of song. Right. All of those people, all of those people that you mentioned, uh, especially Concrete Blonde, that one jumps out at me. They all had very, like, strong female Juliana Hatfield is a little mouse. She's a little mouse running around the room. Yeah, on the spectrum of voices between, you know, Glenn Danzig on one side and Alvin from Alvin and the Chipmunks on the other, she's way closer to Alvin. Yeah, and like I said, I didn't really know a lot about Juliana Hatfield, you know, other than this song. So I I watched a bunch of interviews with her. She is definitely of her time. I knew a lot of girls in the early 90s that looked, dressed, and talked just like Juliana Hatfield. She's very, like, quiet, mousy, stares at her legs when she's talking a lot and stuff like that. The opening, you know, the gist of this song is she's, it's like a love-hate relationship that she has with her sister. You know, the very first line of the song is, I hate my sister, she's such a bitch. 
going back to what we talked about a couple of weeks ago, Tracy Bonham, you know, I made, a, we're going to release a compilation album, Girls That Swear. And the, <laughs> like I said, the opening line of this song is, I hate my sister, she's such a bitch. And I think that was kind of like the hook, like, hey, I hate my sister, she's a bitch, you know? And then, you know, by the end of the song, she actually is like, you know, I love my sister and... You know, she took me to my first All Ages show. Like, we just played with the clip and all that. And I'm watching interviews with her, and I find out today. Today was the day I found out Juliana Hatfield doesn't even have a freaking sister. <laughs> no, that's the beauty of writing, Bill, is you can write about anything. Everything is an autobiographical. No, I'm so mad about it because she was <laughs> she's saying in the interview that that part is autobiographical. Her first show that she saw was the Violent Femmes opening up for the Del Fuegos, and it was before either one of them had record contracts, right. you know? She's like, yeah, that part's true, but the part about me having a sister, no, that's a lie. <laughs> yeah, she based it on some like some older woman that she she knew from the scenes that she was in in Boston. I, I Even I knew that. Good for well, you. It's like one of those weird, that's a weird piece of trivia, though, yeah. that you never think is going to ever bubble out of anything until you bring it up, and I'm like, yeah, I thought everybody knew that, and nope. Well, not again. Usually, when I say the Blake babies, people just look at me and go, "What? what I don't know what you just said. That th- those words don't mean anything to me." Oh, you know what happened to me is I was looking up her Wikipedia page, reading up about it, doing research. My favorite part about the show, and sometimes my brain works faster than my mind does because now, I mean, I know that sentence doesn't make sense, but I'm reading and it says that she was in Blake Babies. I was like, "Holy shit! She sang for Iron Maiden!" And I'm like, "No, no, no! Wait, that's <laughs> that's Blaze Bailey." Sorry. All right. I, ju- I jumped ahead. And then I saw that she was in the Lemonheads and I was like, okay, that tracks because I never really liked them too much either. I remember they did a cover, an acoustic cover of the Misfits Skulls. They they never charted. Even this song, My Sister, never charted in the United States. It never hit the Hot 100. It hit some college charts, but it never, I don't think it ever got any further up than like 33 or 34. Yeah, they used to play it on WBRU. And again, I think it's, it's it all hinges on the fact that she swears or kind of swears at the beginning. You don't hear the word bitch very often. In uh, in top forty music, it's like oh oh oh, we get to say bitch on the radio. We're so excited. Oh, you should listen to uh, her solo record, "Hey Babe," in the song Nirvana, where she goes, "I just want to fuck things up," <laughs> which sounds very <laughs> funny in her like very squeaky voice. Yeah, I think that some of the stuff that works against the Blake Babies and and Julian Hatfield's just solo career is that it is the very definition of indie rock. So it's like all open chords. There's no solos. It doesn't feel like there is a tremendous amount of artistry in the music part. That you're sort of meant to focus on the lyrical content, which is fine. Tons and tons of bands have become very famous while doing that. It's just that they sound like an also-ran, you know? My enjoyment of them comes from playing them at the radio station. I remember how much fun I – hey, these guys are local. This is cool. I'm playing a local band on my radio show on Saturday morning. Right. None of their songs seem to – like, if the song starts out slow, it stays slow. Yeah. And if it starts out fast, it stays fast. It doesn't seem to have any highs or lows. It's very sta- stagnant. It, I guess it's you could very say it's stagnant. stagnant. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. First, she said that she, you know, first got interested in music when she heard the punk rock band X, and I was like, X, oh my god! I mean, they had that song Johnny Hit and Run Pauline, which is you know a song that you really shouldn't play on the radio. And then I was like, that that doesn't sound like Juliana Hatfield at all. And then uh, they said that she also is a big fan of Olivia Newton-John. I was like, okay, that tracks. That makes a little bit more sense. In her more, you know, more close to present time, 
she's she's gone on to make records by doing covers. She did a whole record of uh, Olivia Newton-John covers. Yeah, she did another one of all police covers, too. Uh, for better or for worse. She doesn't do Demolition Man. She left that up to Manfred Mann to f*** up. <laughs> all right, uh, before we wrap up the show, I do have my very popular and always well-received trivia question for you. All right, slow pitch right over the plate, Jeff. The original Star Trek series debuting in 1966. How far in the future does it take place? Uh, you think I would know this right off the bat. I faked it pretty good in the beginning of the show, but I'm, I really don't know. I'm going to just jump ahead and say 300 years. Ding, ding, ding. Two in a row. Wow. Two in a row, I, th- I think. <laughs> no, no, you didn't. No, you didn't get last week's. You didn't get last. No, you did get last week's. That's right. I did get last week's. Yeah, that it was is, the, the Magic Eight Ball one. Yeah, it is two in a row. Yeah, all right. Two in a row. We got a streak going on, guys. Yeah, exactly 300 years in the future. Nice. And I thought that uh, Star Trek The Next Generation was 350 years in the future, which I think it is. Uh, um, so, yeah, yeah I'm I not sure. Backwards. I didn't do the math on that one. I did the math on this one. <laughs> all right. Two in a row, guys. Place your bets for next week. All right, but that is going to wrap up this week's show. We will see you back here in exactly seven days. Count them. Say goodnight, Jeff. Goodnight, Jeff. Bye, Bye, everybody. A special thanks to James Costa for our theme music. Thank you so much for listening to Twibbly, or This Week Was Way Better Last Year. You can find us on messages on Facebook or Instagram using TWWWBLY. Please subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already. And remember, Twibbly is like candy. It's more fun when you share. What? No. Who writes this? That's not like candy at all.